Okay, I'm supposed to be moderating this event. First, I would like to express my thanks to the organizers, the Harvard Bookstore, Theater, the MAT, and uh, my special gratitude, our special gratitude, I think I, I speak in the name of the three of us, to Roger Conover, who was the instigator of this uh, short circuit series and invited us to be the, the co-editors of this series. Um, now, um, being the moderator is very strange in, for me, a strange position to occupy in this event because the moderator is supposed to be in some sort of meta position in, regard, in relation to the interlocutors or to the subject matter. And if this is the case, then I'm the last person sh who should be moderating this event. I have no meta position, no distance to this. Uh, first, to the subject matter, the two books being published, I'm also the co-editor of this series. I'm highly biased. I'm proud of the books being published in this series. And as um, regarding my, my two interlocutors, they are my two best friends. We have been um, collaborating for decades now, um, both in do, do, doing together theoretical work and being close friends and there are actually no boundaries between the two. And I think it's quite unique and rare that actually three people like us, uh, friends and close uh, theoretical collaborators, are given the opportunity to co-edit a series um, at a prestigious editor like um, a publisher like MIT and we feel very privileged to be in that in that position um, now to to say something about what connects what there is a common plot there is a common narrative that we all work on and the simplest way to describe this uh, common plot at the bottom is that is to say that we work on the juncture, the interstice between philosophy and psychoanalysis. And this juncture is paradoxical because most philosophers, the bulk of people who work in philosophy would see psychoanalysis as a suspicious kind of domain, marginal to philosophy, not proper philosophy. Some would take, well, some inspiration for psychoanalysis or some would try to turn psychoanalysis into another philosophical current, which is not what we are trying to do. This is a way of neutralizing the sting of psychoanalysis. And on the other hand, most of the people who work, who are psychoanalysts, who work in psychoanalysis, have a certain hostility and distance to philosophy. And uh, this started already with Freud, was absolutely... Uh, want to keep um, away from philosophy, saw it even as a danger for psychoanalysis, his connection with philosophy. And Lacan was even more adamant in one of his um, famous pronouncements. He says, Je m'insurge contre la philosophie. I raise up against philosophy. One thing is certain this is a finished thing. Huh? Like, the, the, one couldn't be more clear. But then, um, there's a paradox. If you look at Lacan's work and um, both his written work and the seminars he has been giving for 27 years, there's hardly any session that passed by without him referring, very centrally referring, giving very specific philosophical references. And his key concepts, the key concepts of uh, psychoanalysis are always underpinned by a philosophical reference. We take the concept of the unconscious, there is Descartes and Cogito. And he even claimed that uh, Cogito was the subject of the unconscious. We take the concept of repetition, his references to Aristotle and Kierkegaard. We take the concept of transference, he always refers it to Socrates, to Plato's uh, symposium. The theory of all discourses, you cannot make sense of it without referring to Hegel's uh, dialectic of master and slave. Formulas of sexuation refer back to uh, Aristotle's uh, logical quadrangle. And, well, the question of jouissance, of enjoyment, surplus enjoyment, is referred, is put into analogy with Marx's notion of uh, surplus value. So, philosophical references abound. There is no Lacan without philosophical references. 
And of course, there is a paradox, and I think that Lacan, um, on the one hand, opposed philosophy as a unitary field or as a, as a totality. But uh, by opposing this unitary field of totality of philosophical discourse, this gave, gave him freedom to address philosophy at singular points, and singular points which very precisely point to certain intersections with uh, psychoanalysis and which, may, which make that philosophical tradition is seen in a completely different way and also psychoanalysis by this reference to philosophy suddenly becomes something, something very different. So we work at this particular juncture, juncture, all three of us, we see it as extremely productive. Now the two authors um, whose books are presented here today, um, although they have a common plot and address questions, same questions as it were, there couldn't be a bigger, bigger difference in style. Um, this is Alenka's, I think, fourth book in, in English, and each of those books are very precisely focused on a certain topic, and they're rather thin books. The first one on Kantian ethics, the second one on Nietzsche, the third one on comedy, and this instigated or gave a big push to comedy studies, and this is a field which is being, a lot of, a lot of good work is being done uh, on this field today, and all the people working in this field take uh, Alenka's book as being absolutely seminal for this. And then uh, the fourth book, which... Uh, Alenka's proposal for the title is, was Sexuality and Ontology. Roger thought this was rather dull, so he rather um, proposed uh, the change of title to this uh, sexier, sexier title, which is What is Sex? What could be sexier title than What is Sex? And uh, if you look closely at the title, then is is italicized, so it's not what is sex, but what is sex. So there is a certain subplot of um, like relation, this difficult relation between the oldest philosophical question of being and the question of sex. So these are books which are very precisely focused and thin books. If we take Slavoj, I think Slavoj, um, since ever I met him, and uh, we met actually as undergraduates. Uh, in, if my memory holds well, then this was in the fall of 1970, which is like 47 years ago. Like in three years, we will be celebrating the anniversary. Uh, this is my longest standing friendship, and what a friendship it is. And I think that since ever I met Slava, he has been writing one single book. Okay. <laughs> it's, whenever a certain amount of material adds up, then he cuts it and wraps it up as a book. And there, there have been some, whatever, 35, 50. No, nobody, nobody counts them any longer. I don't think he knows how many, how many there are. So there's a very, very different style. You write a single text and you, then you cut it at some, at some points. And this text goes, uh, is not quite focused but goes in all kinds of directions. So there's a very different quality to this, because all his texts are like a tapestry, the tapestry which give references to the hardest philosophical questions in the philosophical tradition, and on the other hand, to what may seem to be the ephemeral latest phenomena in popular culture, and everything in between. No? So this, this tapestry quality, this spreading out quality, and okay, if you have these big, two big modernist authors, uh, on the one hand James Joyce, on the other hand Beckett, you know that Joyce was always adding, he's exuberant. This is like a Slavoj style. I think a style is the style of reduction, <laughs> reduction and focusing to the minimal, to the absolute core. Um, okay. I will just give a, a cue. I mean, my function here is just a brief introduction. And um, the first cue would be precisely this intersection between sexuality and ontology. 
Slavo, this is what both books are about, and Slavo adds to this the question of uh, political, political economy, another focus. Um, so, I think first Alenka's book, uh, What is Sex? Um, I think the biggest, one of the biggest qualities of this book is that it very successfully uh, thwarts all the expectations raised by the title. <laughs> like everybody, somehow the title gives the expectation, finally we will learn what is sex, or there will be juicy stories, there will be ex examination of various sexual practices, um, social repercussions of sexuality, etc., etc., the proliferation of sexual meanings. But actually what we find instead is a very stern, austere, dealing with very abstract questions, a core, a certain something that stands at the core of sexuality, uh, the question of being, the question of one, and these are two oldest philosophical categories. Phil philosophy started by Parmenides positing this first philosophical thesis, being is one. The question of being, the question of one, the question of negativity, the question of a minus, the question of excess. So, instead of proliferation of all possible sexual meanings, we have a reduction of them. Reduction of sexuality to something meaningless at its core. So my first cue would be simply this. We take these abstract philosophical categories, being one negativity. Why, how come they have a relation to sexuality? How come, what is the, what is the point, where do you see the possible mapping between the most abstract philosophical question and where does sexuality come comes in. And this is a sort of cue for both, because one part of Slavoj's book actually is a kind of response, reaction to Alenka's book. It was written after Alenka's book, but they, came, they were published at roughly the same time. So, what is this? One being negativity on the one hand, the question of sex and sexual difference on the other. How does these two domains of pure philosophy and this take on sexuality that we have in psychoanalysis, how do they come together? And Alenka, please, first. <laughs> okay, thank you. And thank you all for coming here. Um, yeah, I couldn't help noticing when we made this uh, Joyce Beckett uh, comparison that actually the title of Slavic book nevertheless comes from Beckett. <laughs> it's a bit, uh, no, I, I don't know, just to say a couple of things. Uh, of what you opened as a discussion, perhaps starting from uh, the beginning of your introductory expose, which is the, this kind of encounter of psychoanalysis and philosophy. I think uh, we are all work out of this convic uh, conviction that something happened to philosophy when psychoanalysis appeared. So that in this something is what's a kind of uh, conceptual innovation and that uh, philosophy cannot and should not simply pretend that nothing happened here. So there was a certain kind of event that concerns philosophy as well. Now, what is this event and why? Because, okay, there are still nevertheless many people who work at, in some sense with both fields and Lacan did inspire quite some philosophical readings and I think uh, basically what I tried to do in this book with this emphasis on focus that you brought up also is to actually focus on two things that seem the most incompatible. That is to say if you look into how uh, philosophy usually if it does so, uh, adopts or appropriates psychoanalysis, it can more or less digest everything. Uh, and in Lacan, there are lots of things like this from this notion of the concept of the other, of truth, of the subjectivity, of um, whatever, the four discourses, the political dimension, all this. But uh, sex, sexuality, it is really usually something that is simply left out as something that philosophy finally don't know what to do with. Uh, and on the other hand, so this is on the side of uh, philosophy, and if you look at the side of uh, psychoanalysis, it is ontology, the, the word that is usually, I mean, that psychoanalysis doesn't really know what to do with, and Lacan had some kind of really harsh words for 
ontology being the discourse of the master. So I really tried to not really put these two together, but to actually cast them in the opposite camps, namely cast the uh, sexuality as the very philosophical problem of psychoanalysis and ontology to some extent as a core problem of sexuality as psychoanalysis uh, kind of uh, sees it. So uh, these were these kind of abstract stakes, the abstract stakes that Mladen uh, mentioned, and basically the, 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 the argument uh, there is that uh, for Lacan what is interesting is that uh, ontology as, as this science of being qua being come with a, comes with a certain price. This would be this kind of criticism of what philosophy does. It comes with a certain price and this price is that it has to kind of obliterate or even stitch up a certain negativity that is part of being but is not reducible to being. I mean, it's not, it's not being nor non-being, but it's it belongs to it. So it's, we, you have a slightly different story than, for example, in Heidegger, we have the story that philosophy is a, for, history of philosophy is a kind of forgetting of being, here it's the forgetting of something in being which is not fully being. And the importance of this negativity of this something is precisely that while not being fully being, and Lacan calls this the real, uh, as different from being precisely, it nevertheless affects the laws of being and its appearing. So it's not this kind of a simple neutral negativity, but it's a negativity that is very much inscribed into what appears uh, as what is there. Uh, and so what was really important for me, for me to put it in a kind of a nutshell is that uh, this is not simply about a certain dimension, precious dimension uh, that was kind of let out by philosophy and that psychoanalysis uh, discovers and now protect or is the guardian of it because it cannot speak for itself. The crucial turn around, turning around is, I think, this main thesis of psychoanalysis that this dimension very much speaks. It speaks and is inherent into everything that is out there, but we have to know how to listen to it, to recognize it and to like, uh, work with it. So, and in this way, uh, then we can perhaps later on, but I won't go into this now, come into this, uh, what I refer to as this short circuit between ontology and epistemology, because the notion where these things come together is precisely the notion of the unconscious, which is not simply the opposite of conscious, it's not some container of some deeply refreshed thoughts, but it's precisely a very precise formal structure in psychoanalysis, which is a structure of knowing. It's not simply not knowing, it is knowing, but precisely at a knowledge that can never be of this kind of immediate kind. So this just kind of a general way of uh, saying what is the main uh, argument of my book. Slava. <coughs> I will approach this from another perspective. Incidentally, I'm grateful to the lady who introduced us. I just want to make an obvious self-critical remark. I was introduced as this, that, and psychoanalyst. Please. I talk all the time. Can you imagine me to sit there and listen patiently to another person <laughs> for more than 20 seconds, whatever? No, 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 not that. Okay, let me go on. I will try to formulate what you were approaching in a much nastier way, but don't be afraid. No big trigger warnings are needed. Uh, Although for some of you it may be problematic, but please take very naively and seriously what I will say. This, how sexuality is a, not a threat to ontology, but signals an, an in, inherent self-blockade, self-impediment in the order of being. Look, I'm sorry, some of you will be wounded. I asked myself, inquiring with friends who know more than me about it, what would have been a zero-level, most elementary shot in standard male chauvinist hardcore pornography? And different people came with the same answer. It's a very specific shot. Woman 
lying on her back with her legs up spread. In front, you see, in close-up, because the camera is close to that point, the guy penetrating her. But there is almost always another feature which is absolutely crucial. Between her thighs, legs in the air, you always see in the background her face breaking the basic rule of fiction cinema where you know an actor, if it's not a point of view shot, is not allowed to look into the camera. She is addressing you or me or the spectator trying to demonstrate, yes, I'm really enjoying. Of this, stop trigger warning, no dirty stuff. <laughs> what interests me in this scene so much is first how wrong it is the standard critical notion that uh, hardcore pornography uh, objectivizes, instrumentalizes the woman. It's exactly the contrary. In most of the movies I was told, I'm talking about this short 10 minutes, just a copulation, you even don't see the man's uh, face. He is just an uh, instrument. His point is to have the erection and bam bam do the work. The only one treated as subject in this totally elementary sense reaction and also the one who explodes the closed space. It's not just the two of them making love and I observe them. No, one of them is subjectivized and directly addresses me, is the woman. Now, to avoid a misunderstanding, I am a feminist. And my point here is not, oh, so it's okay, women are subjectivized. No, this subjectivization is a fake which is in a way even much more brutal and humiliating for the woman than for the man. But uh, the point that I like here is that I don't see this minimal constellation as some kind of uh, uh, perversion of pro-prosexuality where... It's always something like this in sexual act. The couple is never alone. It's never, my God, now I'm with the person whom I'm in love, blah, blah, and it's just the two of us. There is always a third element, a gaze imagined, a fantasy element, and so on, which is incidentally also why it's totally wrong to claim that uh, hardcore pornography meant for men is simply a masturbatory device. No, I don't identify certainly not with that poor anonymous guy who is doing the hard work. I identify with my pure gaze, I'm really kind of almost Cartesian subject, who is just looking for the confirmation of being of jouissance. Like, it is really, jouissance is there. And uh, so, uh, it's never just MF. This is one of the ways to read uh, what Lacan says about there is no sexual relationship or sexual difference. It's not difference between the sexes. It's something, the difference is something to be added to it. I, as a viewer, am that plus added to it. And uh, so, just, so uh, what, what has this to do? This the philosophical content of this vulgar example is simply the basic reflexivity of being. You never get an immediate full, full enjoyment where all the differences disappear and so on and so on. There is always a complication which has to be filled in by fantasy. Fantasy in psychoanalysis is not, oh, I would like to sleep with that girl, man, whatever, and... Uh, I cannot get him, her, so I fantasize about it. No, the problem of fantasy is the opposite one. What do I have to think, dream about when I do make love with him, her? The idea is that it's never the two of us alone. Something is always added. And now let me make a crazy jump so that I don't take so much time. Uh, 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 this LGBT topic, the aspect there, and you find this in her book more than in mine, that attracts all of us is the mysterious plus, you know, LGBTQ plus. 
we claim that it's wrong to read this plus in a nominalist empirical way, like, you know, there are so many forms of gender identities or sexual identities, we will never cover them all, so we should be modest, my God, what if we missed some version, so let's add a plus, signaling we are modest, it's not all. Our speculative thesis is, no, plus is not just this, plus is, uh, you can be also a plus directly. As she develops in her book... Not in this book, because this is another text, but... <laughs> okay, I treat you the way Mladen treated me. You are also, I think, deeply writing one and the same book and so on. Okay, no, is that uh, the formula of difference is M plus. A woman is plus, which incidentally doesn't mean she is less than men, but on the contrary, that she is more. And that's the mystery, I'm so sad we don't have more time, uh, because we will come to answer to your stupid questions, whatever. <laughs> but the point is, that this idea that you take something that appears just as an undefined excess, and you say, no, this excess, surplus, as such, as such, it can exist. And uh, so, uh, just if you allow me one thing, uh, what forms does this excess take? This excess, you already mentioned it, or you mladen forgot who, the Lacanian name for it would be plus de jouir surplus enjoyment. Like in that, I'm apologizing in advance, tasteless sin, uh, sin, sin, S-C, not sin, <laughs> that I evoked, the plus is the gaze. The plus, this plus has to be here. This is the surplus enjoyment of the cinder. And now let me make, and then I stop, the last concluding remark with regard to an event which goes on now and which I think should be taken very seriously. I consider it's a great revolution, potentially. You know, this big, let's call it naively, feminine awakening, women coming out, we were harassed, and so on, and so on. But I hope you will agree with me that the danger is that, among other things, and I am grateful to Mladen, he noticed this when we had the same city round table yesterday in New York, that, uh, to, that this will regress into yet another case of, the, of political correctness at its worst, where uh, what justifies you, what gives credibility, authority to your word is to proclaim the status of victimhood, you know. To be listened to seriously in these times, you have to proclaim that in some sense you are a victim. If we will follow just this path, it's not enough. We will have to find, especially not we for them, women to much more actively translate this victimhood, not enjoying being victims, but, of course, it's an obscene enjoyment, non-acknowledged enjoyment, but translate this into an active political stance. So that's this difficult point, how when Lacanians, when we deal with ideology, it's always, even if it's the most ascetic, sacrificing move, look for hidden enjoyment, for surplus enjoyment, where and how, an ideological edifice or a practice, as it were, bribes you. I've spoken too long. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, I, have, I have two questions, one for each, and then we go to the um, uh, question by the public, which yeah. we did it in a Stalinist way. He has questions <laughs> there. It was all censored, you know, and so on. So that no, no, I'm the censor. I'm the censor. Stalinism is I all. You notice the three seats here. <laughs> <laughs> You will not hear about them, they are already on their way to Gulag. But okay, let's go. It's okay. Um, I have a brief question for Alenka. Actually, I'll just repeat the question. We had a discussion about her book um, in Chicago last week, and one student in the audience said, okay, I respect this theoretical work, but you are taking all the fun out of sex. And Alenka adamantly said, Yes, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> so, okay, are you taking all the fun out of sex? Uh, yes, ah. and I, I'm proud of this achievement. But, 
because I think part of the way precisely in which I mean, okay, this is also to some extent a Foucauldian point and I kind of counteract it in another way, part of the way in which, in which precisely sexuality is being, in fact, exploited and uh, uh, subjected to uh, all kinds of constraints, uh, why it is precisely by this idea that there is something inherently kind of uh, non-problematic, liberating uh, about sexuality and precisely by this kind of injunction to produce uh, sexual meanings, to recognize sexual... You have sometimes this still very bizarre image that Freud was actually somebody who discovered sexual meanings behind everything. It was actually the, the other way around. It was not that he didn't discover uh, sexuality as the ultimate answer be, be, be beyond all these meanings, but as the ultimate question, because it precisely where you, uh, so the, 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 I think in some way you can say that the very uh, way the, also the, the, the both uh, psychological, philosophical and political uh, stakes of uh, psychoanalysis uh, lie precisely uh, there where it is uh, capable of cutting this kind of a fluent circulation of meaning feeding this, all these kind of, uh, f not all fantasies, but precisely interrupting this uh, flow and this juicy part of the, the affair, which kind of fits all kinds of uh, social and other fantasies. So, yeah, it is not only my achievement, I guess, that Lacan already, I mean, the formulas <laughs> of sexuality, I mean, the, it is, where can you get more abstract or more kind of uh, deep into the, the logic and mathematics than with sex? I mean, this is uh, somehow already written into Lacan, but I think it is important not simply to, to reduce it to this point of impasse and impossibility, which, however, as such, is irreducible. So uh, I think that there are both moves, the, the kind of, but uh, yeah, meaning and this kind of uh, enjoyment in in window is not exactly what is the what uh, psychoanalysis is there to promote or to. Uh, yeah. Okay, um, Slavoj, I have to ask you about this last part of your book. I mean, sexuality and ontology are already strange bedfellows. If you add to this political economy, makes it even stranger. So why this trio? I mean, how do you see then the function of political economy in relation to the first two, two things, uh, ontology and sexuality, and you make this ups or oops or whatever um, triad, like the universal ontology, the particular situation, the singular political economy? critique of political economy. Uh, how do you see the relation between the three? What okay. is the point of the third one being added to the first two? This is a beautiful question. I'm tempted to say, let's make a short break and then you <laughs> return and we go on for three hours. No? Because you touch the core of my book. Uh, again, I don't want to be too boring here. So, as which of you was it? I forgot. Already indicated that, that crucial for Lacan's notion of plus de jouir, surplus enjoyment. Enjoyment found in the very renunciation to enjoyment. You know, Lacan always proclaimed that anxiety is authentic, okay, but all the topic of sacrifice, there was something fake in it for Lacan. There is always a secret surplus enjoyment in renunciation itself. So, uh, uh, I would maybe like to give you one simple example, which is uh, in my book, if I remember it correctly. A friend of mine from Slovenia who works here in the States told me that once, towards the end of the day, he went to a Walmart store and noticed something very strange there. It was toward the, he noticed near the exit to the store many of those trolleys, where you put merchandises, full of commodities, merchandises, but just left standing there. And he asked the persons working there, what's going on? And they told him, this is mostly the new impoverished uh, middle class. They were so attached to the ritual of shopping in a megastore supermarket, that they go there, the whole family, they go through the entire ritual of shopping, 
And when it's full, that trolley, they simply leave it there. Because what gives them pleasure is just the process, you know. And so it's a nice example of how what remains there is surplus enjoyment without even enjoyment. So the problem, the point is, as we all know, this is a very primitive example of shopping, that you, just, you, you don't just shop to get what you need. It can be almost more important the very procedure of shopping. At least I admit this, for example, that's why I have big, as in California, attitude problems with Amazon. Come. <laughs> because for me, I like to go when I'm here to Harvard bookstore, not co-op, it's a class struggle here, <laughs> progressive, <laughs> Harvard versus reactionary co-op. And you know, part of the I'm sorry to use these stupid California terms, but part of the experience of it, it's precise, precisely the process of <coughs> So, uh, and, okay, I will now condense it very much. What happens in capitalism is something unique. Although this destabilizing structure of a surplus, and uh, let me tell you very briefly another example, and then I will stop, from my book, which is my favorite. If you ask me for the favorite pages from my book, I think it's where I talk about Thomas Aquinas. If you want to learn about perversities of enjoyment, turn to theology. They are full of it. <laughs> no? He asks in one of his texts, Thomas Aquinas, will people who are in heaven, the good guys, will they be able to see also suffering in hell? And the answer is, it must be yes, because they will know much more, they will be all-knowing, so why should this be prohibited to them? Then, of course, he, Thomas Aquinas, is honest enough to raise the obvious question, but isn't there some obscenity at work here? Will it not? How can, if they are good, honest people, how can bring them how can a view of others suffering terribly, how can it bring them satisfaction? And instead of admitting this perversity, Aquinas cheats here. No? His answer is, they are not really enjoying suffering in hell, they are really enjoying the greatness of divine, divine justice, you know who, and so on. Of course, we should claim no, and the, here we have surplus enjoyment at its purest. Even if you have all you want, all the honey or whatever, although with sex is more ambiguous. Do you remember, Mladen, you told me this story? Wasn't there an Italian nun about a year ago who was asked, aren't you sorry of being a nun? Like you miss sex? And she gave a wonderful answer, that when I was younger, I had sex. But isn't it that we can expect from God, imagine sex, but imagine sex multiplied, even greater pleasure, and this will be heaven, and so on, no? So obviously it doesn't work. It has the same role as that gaze in hardcore pornography. Obviously, you need the surplus of seeing others suffering to enjoy fully uh, heaven. And something like this is capitalist economy. As they say, this diversion in capitalism, it's not only that I should win, it's that the other guy should lose, you know. And me enjoying in that. And then I imagine a scene which I really like, I'm proud of it, of imagine hell. We all know what is hell. A place where they have fire only to give good barbecues, you drink, you eat, you copulate all the time. And I imagine it like this. It, it's wonderful all the time, but like once a week, devil comes and said, guys, I know we have fun, but I learned from my friend God up there that now we will be displayed to people in paradise. Please pretend now that you are suffering. People say, oh, 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 oh. And then I will tell you when they close the window and we can go on and so on, you know. So now a little bit more seriously. This is... Capitalism is something tremendous. Marx admired it. It's the first system which directly 
used as its basic machinery, something that all previous systems experienced as a threat. The big motive of all traditional ontologists, even in sex, is, you know, the balance of masculine, feminine, how to, pre how to prevent the excess, how to maintain the stability. Capitalism thrives of instability. But today, so that I don't talk too much, just a concluding comical event, I love it. Today, something strange is happening with these tensions, you know, prohibition, which gives you a surplus enjoyment, and so on. A kind of a collapsing of the opposite with our permissivity, neutralizing their tension. Let me tell you the story. I have a wife who is a chain smoker, so we went recently went to a hotel in Skopje where my wife presented her new book, uh, 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 Macedonia, south of ex-Yugoslavia. And, of course, the first question of my wife was, can I smoke in the hotel room? And she got a unique answer. It's prohibited by the law, and you have ashtrays, a couple of them, in the room. <laughs> then this paradox was even confirmed by, I'm so sad I didn't want to get it boring, I have it on my USB as an image. You know, the ashtrays that were there, you know, usually you have on the bottom of the ashtray, if they are made of glass, some image. The image was the prohibited to smoke style. <laughs> no. And I find this rather sad. Okay, it looks nice, it's a supreme joke, you know. But something is lost in the, of the traditional economy of transgression because the tension is simply cancelled. And I wonder if up to some point Donald Trump doesn't function as that ashtray, you know? <laughs> I stopped. Okay. <laughs> okay, we will have to finish at some, uh, I don't know, five past seven or something, so we... Haha, <laughs> that was the idea, <laughs> that you will not have time to ask <laughs> no, no, no. stupid questions. You no, know? no, no, we are, we, are, we are supposed to do the book signing and stuff, and we have to be out of here before eight. So I will... Okay, I have selected a couple of questions, but uh, not avoiding the tough ones. Um, and I will start... Um, uh, many questions uh, turn around precisely on the note on which you finished, which is... Uh, Our beloved Donald. Uh, Donald Trump. And maybe first for Alenka, the question is, is political correctness responsible for the election of Donald Trump? Um... <laughs> yeah, I think it is, but uh, not not necessarily only in this uh, simple way of understanding this claim, which is that uh, Trump or the people voting for him is a simple reaction to some kind of uh, uh, political correctness going too far or running crazy or something. There is this, of course, but I think what is more responsible for electing of the Donald Trump is that uh, for a very long time now the left has been fighting all the wrong battles and that the, the, the fact that political correctness was almost the only uh, kind of uh, political... Uh, formal fight on the left or kind of cause on the left is I think what, what caused very much the, the, the kind of uh, desertion of a certain base of uh, electorship which would be there where there other causes addressed in a certain other way. So I think the, the problem here is really deeper. It's not simply the, the moment you reduce the Class, political struggle in this kind of fighting for certain rights and certain kinds of expression, which of course is also important, I'm not denying it, but you kind of let go of a more fundamental fight, or fundamental in the sense of causing a huge amount of social difficulties and in, injustices in, in and, and poverty, and you just think that you've done your job if you saved some of this nominalist problem, which can have some kind of performative effect, I agree, but still they do not, they are far from addressing what is really the problem and this I think is part of what played uh, in the hands of uh, the election of uh, Trump. Yeah. Okay, Slavoj, I will not avoid the sort of critical note which are expressed in some uh, questions and uh, the simplest one is this one. Did you endorse Donald Trump? Hmm. I did on, on, in two interviews. 
never in a written text, but I still absolutely cling to it in what sense? I know, my God, Trump is an abomination, an ontological scandal, <laughs> ontological even. <laughs> but my wild hope was that the true problem, and that's also why it's linked to what you said, why, why Trump won, the, the true catastrophe is, everybody knows this, the, the Democratic yeah. Party. The way they dealt with Bernie Sanders, the way they avoided the tough questions, and uh, even now, it goes on. I, I don't have any doubt that Russian secret services were messing things up here. My only, the only thing I would like to add here is that Americans, you are doing it all the time, I hope. You, are, you just call it fight for democracy, humanitarian help. I mean, I'm not for Putin. I... Uh, I'm attacking him ferociously all the time, but at one point I have had almost a sympathy for Putin when in an interview he said, are you aware that there are a couple of hundred NGO financed in obscure way who are all here to undermine him and so on and so on. Just imagine us doing this to the United States. So... Uh, so, uh, I think, nonetheless, that basically this obsession with did Russians hack the election is here precisely to avoid confronting the true deadlock, the true question, what to do with Bernie Sanders' revolution, and so on, and so on. And the big task of the left here, it's clear. It's all these new movements which are very important, the woman's awakening that I mentioned, and so on and so on, not to allow the media to turn it into a simple, another moment of victims making their claim and so on in this depoliticized way and so on and so on, to turn it into a problem. So uh, my point was only this one. I hoped that only an imaginable thing like, disgusting, like Trump, the president, can introduce a certain dynamic, especially to the center-left Democratic Party, which may change things. Otherwise, and we learn this sad lesson again and again from Europe, otherwise... Uh, we will have this very sad scene, you Alenka wrote about it very nicely, how, how uh, insufficient this left liberal reaction is. We have all those wonderful jokes uh, against Trump, you know, John Stewart, John Oliver and so on. And yes, we are dying of laughter, but Trump will be winning more and more and so on and so on. It's a very sad situation, uh, but so there is no, I'm disgusted at Trump. Just what I like in him is that he is... Uh, did you notice this? He's basically systematically ruining the, the Republican Party. <laughs> it's total confusion there. This is why I will go now even a step further. In this situation now, you should pray that Trump doesn't get impeached. Why? If he gets impeached, you get Mike Pence, <laughs> which I'm sorry to tell you is much worse. <laughs> what I like with Trump is all this crazy-like. Disgusting. All this crazy inconsistencies, like take a guy like Steve Bannon, almost neo-fascist and so on. But did you hear what was his reaction to tax plan of Republicans now? He said, this just helps the rich. No, we should do the opposite. We should raise the taxes for the rich up to 45% and so on. This is our situation now, this total ideological mess. We in Europe feel it even worse in Europe. A, only today, only a neo-fascist right dares, among the serious political agents, dares to advocate some, this type of old welfare measures and so on. And the opposite side, if you want really the toughest austerity politics, you need radical left in power. That's the sad experience of Syriza. It was absolutely crucial for the left to do it. If the right were to do it, the left would organize demonstrations and so on. To get Syriza implanting austerity politics means 
people have no organized forum to protest, they get totally and so on and so on. And uh, another thing with Trump is that uh, beware that he is not an abomination. He is part of the global change in capitalism where a new authoritarian and more and more openly obscene leadership is becoming the norm. It's not only Trump. I was told recently in Poland mm. that their, their uh, uh, Jaroslaw Kaczynski, the secret authority, mm. de facto ruler of Poland, he was a couple of years ago asked by a journalist, now that your party won, what's your program? And he gave, if you are some from Poland here, you will probably know, I hope I will pronounce it correctly, expression. He says, Terra Skurva Mi. Which means now it's our turn to fuck the whore. It's a very cheap expression from militaries like, you know, when you wait a line in a cheap brothel, the guy before you finishes, then you are on. And what I find so depressing that this is the guy who claims to be strict partisan of moral majority, highest, and so on, uh, moral rules. And when he was confronted by this on TV, he repeatedly stuck to it. I think this is not a simple inconsistency. I think what Trump brings out is not simply an abomination of neoconservatives. He is their truth. And this gives us in all his obscenity. And it's a unique chance for us, if you are this, uh, if you are not, then you will follow the path of these three guys uh, when we take over that, uh, sorry, no, seriously, that, you know, this term moral majority is so abused, as if these are some conservative nuts and so on. But sorry, today, in contrast to our youth, when... The radical left were saying, th those in power are pseudo-dignified, let's use the F-word, and so on. Now, the neocons are getting more and more obscene, using incredibly openly racist, dirty language. It's a unique opportunity, and Bernie Sanders is already doing, to claim, of course, not in a conservative sense, but in the sense of simple human dignity. Sorry, we are the true moral majority, if this term has any meaning. We are for simple decency and so on. That was, I think, also the secret of Jeremiah Corbyn's success. Mm -hmm. I stop, I stop, I stop, I talk too much. No, right. Majority of questions were actually aimed uh, are for you, Slava, and um, I just yeah. But you should make a choice. Send no, no. I, I will just. Uh, I want us to finish on a maybe difficult, different political note, and I'll take just this one last question, which is: uh, We just passed the hundredth anniversary of the Russian Revolution. There seemed to be relatively little recognition of this momentous event. What, why do you think that is? And you have a, another book which came out this year about Lenin and the Russian Revolution. Can you perhaps say something about this? How do you see the function, the legacy or whatever, something to be learned from the Russian Revolution now? I think uh, we should... First, I still think, to put it very simply, I still think that... October Revolution was not simply a coup d'etat of Bolsheviks and elite there. It was an authentic event, an explosion. And I think it was, at the same time, an authentic tragedy. I don't believe in those Trotskyist or others' dreams, you know. If only Lenin were to survive three years and make a pact with Trotsky, it would have been democracy and so on and so on. So I think that... What we should focus, or we should follow, and that's the point of my introduction to Lenin's late writings, this despair of the la last two years of Lenin, where, while being fully responsible for the state of things with Stalin and so on, gaining power, he, it became clearer and clearer to him that something went terribly wrong. And so that, okay, read the book so that I don't lose time. I would like to point this out. You also point at this point. You know that famous Lenin's so-called testament, uh, uh, advising, asking the Politburo to remove Stalin. Today especially, and also in view of Trump and other obscenities, we should be attentive to this along the lines of what I mentioned, moral majority and so on. Read it. Lenin's reproach to Stalin is not wrong political line, whatever. It is Stalin doesn't have good manners. 
she is too rude, too brutal, and so on and so on. This is a beautiful point. Late Lenin coming to this simple ethical point, we need proper manners, and so this is not as naive as it may appear. Because rudeness always served a certain function, and I say this as somebody who still count myself as a communist, in communist discourse, for example, the last obscenity, trigger warning, but it's not a good one. You know when, uh, when the great leap forward in China, this attempted fast industrialization, turned wrong terribly, and there were millions of deaths. Mao convoked a meeting in Lushan, 59, of party elite, and it was supposed to be a self-critical meeting. And uh, in his speech, and it's, you find it on all those Marxist sites, uh, officially, it's part of official texts. You know, uh, <laughs> Mao gives a speech admitting, yes, we are guilty, we, c we committed mistakes, we should admit it. But then the last five lines, the conclusion of a speech ruins everything. Where Mao says something like, uh, I am the first one responsible, so I have to admit my responsibility. It's like to make it easier to release, and then come the last lines. Literally, I quote them. If you feel the need to shit, shit, you will feel better. If you feel the need, I'm sorry in advance, to fart, do it, it will make feel you better. That's how we should do our self-criticism. Now, I find this pretty horrible, and the key point is to understand the rhetoric. Why? When he was talking about millions dead, where does this need to, of this extremely vulgar metaphor come? I think I read Lenin as pointing in this direction. I think, again, in contrast to fascism, which was not a tragedy. Fascism is to simplify it. Uh, an example of bad people promising that if they take power, they will do bad things. And look at the miracle <laughs> that they really did this. No? And, but in uh, Stalinism was a genuine tragedy, which is why, in contrast to fascism, dissidence is an inner dialectic of this tragic turn of communism. You don't have uh, uh, some m marginal, but nobody in Germany, as far as I know, accused Hitler in the same way as, uh, as Trotsky accused Stalin of betraying the revolution. I don't remember anyone accusing Hitler of this. And now, just to conclude, I would like to praise your book, which is there also to sign. In your book on voice, and also in your works already decades ago. You also point out, and we developed it then together, his wonderful book, Voice and Nothing More, Mladens. I don't know if you included this there. You know, this basic difference between mm. fascism and Stalinism. Fascism, Hitler is a figure of voice. Stalin is a figure of writing, interpretation of sacred texts, and so many other things follow for this. Just one example to amuse you. And that's why I was lucky, laughing at her, at you gently. I was waiting for you at the beginning. Check it up on YouTube. Whenever a fascist leader makes a speech, of course, the people applaud, but the leader just accepts the applause. In Stalinism, the leader simply joins the applause. <laughs> Why? Because it's still this uh, message of enlightenment, I'm ultimately one of you, and so on. It's totally different position. Another example, I read this in an Applebaum book on Gulag. You know that every year in Gulag, in the worst years, on Stalin's birthday, all the inmates were collected, and each had to sign a, 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 a telegram to Stalin wishing him happy... Okay, it was a fake, but you cannot even imagine the same thing in Nazism, collecting all the Jews in Auschwitz and making them sign. To it was a totally different discourse. And today, more than ever, when we have this liberal dismissal, they are all the same. No, Stalinism was a nightmare, totally. But it's not the same. Again, it was a tragedy from which we have to learn a lot. It was a tragic twist, maybe it was inevitable, but to finish nonetheless again with you with Beckett, 
you know. Like, the lesson with Stalin, with Stalinism is try again, fail again, fail better. Well, this is definitely not the lesson what we should do with Hitler. <laughs> okay, they told us to stop at like uh, 10 past 7 at the latest. Mm-hmm. So the prospect of revolution, I mean, there is a paradox in what you are saying, because revolution... In 1917, seemed to be a revolution precisely against the established bourgeois yeah. state of things and against the bourgeois manners. Now we have to, re- to do the revolution in order to reintroduce the very Absolutely. notion of manners and <laughs> dignity in public discourse. So it's a revolutionary, revolutionary act is needed yeah, yeah. To, to get so back to this, this very basic... We are promising you. No fun in sex, <laughs> just good manners. <laughs> 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 So thank you very much. We'll be there signing the...